Well, amen. Uh, that's a video about our weekender. Yeah. Some of you are like, the weekender, yay. You talk about it all the time. Yay, yay, yay. Some of you, you're, you go, whoa, they have mac and cheese and barbecue. I'm in. I don't need to pray about it. Good. Okay. We'd love to see you next weekender. Uh, the next weekender is February 25th and 26th. Let me just really quickly, because some of you have been at different churches before, either in this city or other cities. And so you might think you know what the weekender is in respectfully, kindly, maybe you don't, okay? So I know some of you think, aha, Kyle, this is just an event. Well, it is an event, but it's, uh, it's not less than an event. It's more than an event. We're not an event-driven church. I try to never do an event that could have been an email, okay? So our, our hope is it's an event to connect you to relationships because we're not an event-driven church. We are a relationship-driven church. Others of you go, I know what this is. This is another chance for Kyle to stand up for an hour and tell us all the things that the Bible teaches, Okay, I do do that just for the first hour. But it's not just a, a Bible teaching class. It is way more than that. Hey, let me tell you what it is. It is, um, it is an opportunity and an inroad and an on-ramp to discipleship in the life of our church. That's what we're hoping to do. Yes, it's going to connect you to a community group, or yes, it would connect you to a serving team, or yes, if you wanted to, you could pursue membership. Uh, and yes, we're going to tell you all the things that we believe and all of our values and all of our vision, but the heart behind it and the hope behind it is that you and your family would get connected to this, if you want to, to this local church in a meaningful, strategic, and consistent way that would help best disciple you and your family, to get you and your family in the pipelines and the pathways of our church to be better discipled. Because our goal is what was the goal of Jesus Christ, is the goal of every true church, which is we want to make more and better disciples. So what I'm going to do for a moment is I'm just going to pray for us, because by the way, what we're doing here this morning is what we call corporate discipleship. It's just a big Bible study together where we're being discipled by the Word of God. So I'm going to take a moment, pray for that, as well as for anybody who needs to take their next step uh, to go deeper into discipleship in the life of our church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what an amazing opportunity that we get to gather weekly as a church family to look at your word. Lord, we just want to be a church that is under the word of God. We don't ever want to be a church that thinks that we're over the word or we're here to critique the word. We're here to be under the word of God, Lord. But I pray that you would, that every person who can hear me pray right now and is praying with me, that they would make personal decisions to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if that means to enter the weekender, so that they can get more connected here, so that they can get better discipled and better disciple their family. Lord, that's our hope. Lord, as we spend some time now looking at your word, Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see marvelous things in your word that would change and transform our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, you can type to or turn to Song of Solomon chapter three. We've got a lot to cover today. If you're new, we're in this like series that's eight weeks long, so welcome. You're at a great time to be new because we're like right in the middle. We're week four of an eight-week series, so we're kind of right on the cusp of being halfway through this series, and it's been a series. This isn't a series on, on sex, uh, per se, although next week I'm going to talk about sex. That's my final warning, okay? And, and some people go, Kyle, well, what are you going to say? I don't, I'm not sure yet. I'm going to write it tomorrow, okay? <laughs> you know, but, uh, but it's going to be things that are in chapter 4, verse 1, to chapter 5, verse 1. So go ahead and read that, and I hope you'll come back next week, okay? And, and if you have young kids, we have kids ministry in the building next door, fifth grade and under next week, okay? Okay, so that's next week. Now, what have we talked about so far? Well, think about it. it, it there's a logic to the Bible, right? We, we talked about manhood. That was week one. We talked about womanhood. That was week three. We talked about dating and singleness and attraction and moving. How do you move from being single to having a spouse? Okay, we did all that. This week, we're talking about marriage. Now, is marriage a big deal in the Bible? 
Yes, it is. It is. The Bible begins with a marriage, right? God is the first dad and he's the first pastor and he walks his daughter down the aisle and he performs the wedding. It's really beautiful. I mean, it just tells you, by the way, how old marriage is and how stable marriage is. It's been with us from the very, very beginning. Now, interesting little Bible trivia fact. How does the Bible end? With another wedding and another marriage. Okay, guys, marriage is a big deal. Jesus does his very first miracle to begin his public ministry at a... Wedding, you, you guys know the answer to these questions, good. Okay, so uh, marriage is a really big deal. Um, in fact, here, here, there are two big questions that most of us are gonna have to answer in our life, okay? Uh, the first question is, who will I worship? And that's a covenantal question. And that's an eternity-changing question. That's the most important question you'll ever ask. But the second most important question that most of us are gonna have to deal with at one point is not just who will I worship, everyone needs to deal with that. Most of us are gonna deal with this question, who will I wed? That's another, we'll see this today, that's another covenantal decision. Now, I want you to understand this, because part of what it means, if you're going to be a member of our church or a regular attender, or you're going to call two cities home, whatever, whatever you're going to do with that, um, what I want you to do is I want you to start thinking not just about you, but I want you to start thinking about us. And, and what does marriage mean to each of us, right? Because I'm going to give you, I'll give you a little bit the definition of marriage from the Bible. Okay, that's coming. But what I mean is when I talk about marriage experientially and existentially, it means different things to different people. Right? When, you, when I say marriage to some of you, your marriage is going really, really well, and you're like, woo, right? Marriage, yes. And then when I say marriage to some of you, you're like, oh. And it reminds us that there, there's, there's different people in this room, and, and there's different people watching online. There's different people in the lobby that are listening to this. Let me, let me tell you the different people when it comes to marriage, right? There are people who long for marriage, right? Many of our single brothers and sisters, they have a good, godly desire for marriage, Okay, some of you, that's where you are. You've already seen the movie Redeeming Love twice, okay? <laughs> that's you, okay? There's that, there's, but there's other people who long for marriage. The parents of adult children are like, get married, please. Please get married, right? Because we, we, we know it's good for them. We want to see our kids grow up. We want to see them fall in love. We want to see them marry godly people. It's not a bad thing to long for marriage. Now, listen, though, there are people, though. That, that, so that's category one. Okay, great, people long for marriage. You knew that, okay? Um, <clears throat> there's a whole nother category of people who their marriages are so hard. You, some of you are there and you know. Actually, here, here's something you may not know. There are people that, I don't, they didn't email me, but I know this, there are people who did not come today because they knew we were gonna talk about marriage. And it's just too painful. And so, so now there's different reasons why marriage is hard for people. At one level, marriage is hard for certain people because they came into marriage with completely unrealistic expectations, right? They saw the movie, The Notebook, they're like, this is good. I'm in. It's like, okay, not, not the notebook, right? It's like very different. Okay, so some of us, but think about it for a second. Think about how differently your great-grandfather or your great-grandmother would have talked about marriage and the expectations that he or she would have had for marriage. Very different than our expectations. So there's some of us that it's just like, we need to grow up. We need to be stopped being immature. We need to be stopped being so self-centered and selfish and realize marriage is a good gift, but it is hard, but we have the wrong expectations. But then there's other people who are like, no, I'm serious. Like marriage is incredibly hard for them. And you know this, your life is only as good or bad as the closest relationships in your life. And so some people, you meet them, and, I, and I've, I, you, know, you don't really want to come to me for counseling. I'm not really a counselor, right? I mean, but when I've, and I've had to do some counseling. When I've walked with people, you see this. You're like, their personalities are just so different. Or you see, like, there's just so much bitterness. There's so much resentment. resentment. There's so many bad memories. So by the way, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about, you know, for 99.9% .9 of you, okay, 
There is no way out of your marriage. Well, in a couple weeks, we'll talk about, I know there's like an exception clause, and what does Jesus say about divorce? We'll get on all that. I'm saying for 99.9% repeating of you, there is no way out. Stop looking for a loophole. Stop it. Don't look for a loophole. Look for grace. But it's, but it's so, some, so, some people, it's so hard. Some people are so afraid of marriage. There's a lot of young men and young women, but especially young men, they're afraid of marriage. We'll talk about this some in the coming weeks. Why are they afraid of marriage? Well, they're afraid of commitment. Why are they afraid of commitment? Uh, usually they saw that what divorce did to their family. And we'll get into this in a couple weeks. What does divorce do? Divor- Technically, what does divorce do? It fractures your life. That's what it does. If you're divorced, divorced there's lots of grace, but if you're divorced, you now have two lives. And, and, and if you have children, it's like, okay, and, and the children feel all that. And so a lot of people go, I don't want to have my parents' marriage, and therefore I'm not going to get married. Or, or a, lot of, a lot of men don't get married because they don't have good, godly, strong dads. See, what, what a dad does, if, if a guy in general, if he can't get a job, if he can't get a wife, if he can, it's usually a sign. If he can't commit to things, it's usually a sign he doesn't have a good dad. Okay, well, why is that? Because what, here's what a dad does. This is dad 101. A dad basically says this. Um, it can be done. I did it, you can do it, go get it. In every area of his life. And so if a guy goes, I, I don't know if I can make enough money, the dad goes, oh, no, 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 don't worry about it. You can do it, I did it, go out there and get it. I mean, basically, I don't know if I can stay married to one woman my whole life. You, no, 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 it can be done. I did it. You can do it, now go do it. Dads basically do this, tag, you're it. That's the job of a dad. By the time the kid turns 18, tag, you're it, I did it. And this is a real thing because what people will do is, you don't even know this, especially young men, the rest of their life, they're gonna think, well, either they're gonna think positively, I can do this because dad did this. And I remember getting my first job and making like, and I was so poor I couldn't pay attention. And I was just like, and I remember thinking, my dad pays for everything, for everybody, for all the time. He paid for, it's just like, and I remember writing this email, and it's like, okay, and there was this thought in mind. Okay, dad did it, I can do it. But if you don't have that in your mind, then you start thinking, dad didn't do it. I don't, I'm kind of like, I look like my dad. I act like my dad. I got the genetics of my dad. I don't know if I can do this. So there's people who long for marriage. There's people who marriage is so hard. There's people um, who are afraid of marriage. These are, just all, these are all in the room. These are in our church. These are in our city. Okay? There are people who used to be married. They're single, or they're single, they're single again because of usually, well, the only two reasons, because of death or divorce. And when you think of somebody who's single again, I mean, that's a, don't think of just a young person or a middle-aged person. I mean, that's all different types of people who find themselves single again for various reasons. In fact, um, women, as, on average, in America, live eight years longer than men do. So most women are going to find themselves, at least for a short season of their life, single again. I'm mean, like, this is a depressing marriage message. <laughs> I'm just giving us kind of the whole picture of this, okay? Uh, and then finally, there are people who have great marriages, okay? And there are different seasons in our marriages, and there are people who, have, and oftentimes, and you'll talk to them, people who have the best marriages, they often had the hardest marriages for a season. They, they had to go through winter. They had to go through fall before they could get to spring and summer in those seasons. Now, is our, does our culture hold up and have a high view of marriage? No, right? I mean, so my brother, I don't talk about him a lot, but I got a, I got a brother, great brother. He's three years younger than me. Uh, he, was, he was engaged. He is, he, now he's married to this great young lady. But anyway, he was engaged to this girl. He was super excited about it. He goes to his country club. He's a member of the country club. And he goes, and it's like so stereotypical. And he goes and he talks to these old guys at the country club. 
And he tells him about how he's getting married. And he said, one of the old guys at the country club said to him, son, you're breaking into prison. <laughs> Some of you would laugh at that if your wife wasn't here, okay? <laughs> and it's because we know, we, we actually, there's a, there's a part of us that knows how hard marriage is. It's, it is hard. Marriage is being delayed. Marriage is being dismissed. Marriage by certain parents is being discouraged for their kids. And, and again, I want to speak particularly to the young men. There's lots of grace for, for everybody here, but, but I, want, I want to say something that I think is important because one of the reasons that marriage is getting delayed and dismissed is, well, we need to get education, and then we need to, you know, I, I need to, what's happened is marriage used to be the foundation of being an adult. Now it's the finishing touches of being an adult, okay? It used to be, hey, we're going to be, you know, young and in love, and we're 20, and let's get married, or we're 25, and let's get married, and now it's like, we're both 38, you know, and let's try to get married because we both have our, our postdocs and whatever else, you know, okay. And so, but here's what's interesting. Because marriage is being delayed and dismissed, marriage is actually not just being delayed and dismissed, marriage is being missed. This is what they're saying. People think they have more time to get married and that these relationships will still show up again. So look, look if you're older, you're still single, and you, you feel hopeless, this is, not, this is not a judgment on you, there's lots of grace. But I want to speak particularly to the young people here and say this. You get on average four to six opportunities in your life for a romantic relationship. That's it. Know that. Know that for your kids. It doesn't happen often. And so people think, oh, this isn't that important. I got to get my master's. I got to double my salary. I got to travel the world. Maybe. Or maybe you get four to six opportunities in your entire life for a potential of a romantic relationship. And when it comes along and they're another believer, you may want to pay attention very closely to that. And you may want to rearrange everything else in your life for that. So what is marriage? Okay, Marriage is moving from me to we. If you could say it in the simplest way. Marriage has three components to it, okay? It all has to do with oneness. Because think about this. If you have one thought, thought when you leave today, here's what it is. Marriage is moving from me to we. Very simple. That means the goal of marriage. What is the goal of marriage? Is the goal of marriage kids? No, that's one of the fruits of marriage. You know, is the goal of marriage, you know, having a friend? No, that's one of the, that's one of the fruits of marriage. What is the goal of marriage? Biblically, technically speaking, the goal of marriage is oneness. So here's what I want you to understand. We're going to see this today. During the wedding ceremony, what happens is you become one positionally. It's a covenant, and spiritually and positionally, you become one. So as soon as the vows are over, it's like they're spiritually and positionally before God, they're one. And then we'll get into this next week. Okay, final warning that next week's going to be on sex. Um, next week, you become physically one the night of your wedding after you became positionally one. By the way, this is why sex outside of marriage is a lie, because you say something with your body that you haven't said with your life. So follow this. This is all, this is, this is all of marriage. This is, I don't know how to say it any clearer or any simpler. And at the wedding day, you become one positionally. That's why you need a ceremony. That's why your friends need to be there. That's why you need to make public promises. Okay, all of that. We'll get into that. Uh, okay, so you, okay. then that night, and this will be next week, you become one physically. And then the rest of your life, you become one practically and progressively. That's it. And it takes four or five decades to do that. To, act, to be one bank account and one bedroom and one God and one church 
and one last name and one family and one vision for your life. And so what I want us to do today is, is I want us to see, we're going to get in verse, we're going to cover all of chapter three. That was a really long intro, but marriage is a huge topic. Um, in chapter three, we're going to look at the first six verses, the first five verses, she has a nightmare. And then right before her wedding, right, she has this, this will often happen to you. If you've got big events in your life, you've got big transitions in your life, you'll start to, you'll start to have dreams. Well, this is what, she has a nightmare right before her wedding, okay? Look at this. Look at me at verse, uh, chapter three, verse one. Chapter three, verse one. Here's what it says. On my bed by night. So she's telling a story. This is the woman speaking. I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. So she's having a nightmare that she's losing her fiance. Like, okay, by the way, uh, modern people are really funny, okay? We're all modern people. And modern, modern people are funny. We have dreams, and then we wake up from the dreams, and we think, oh, that was random. We're, we're the only people who've ever thought that. So the Bible has a huge, you know, big, robust, I mean, look at the book of Genesis, lots of dreams, okay? Here's what we know about a dream for sure. It's not random. You built a world while you were sleeping that you lived in. Definitely not random. So here, here's what Freud said. I know he's not a Christian, but it's a very interesting insight because he studied dreams for a long time. Freud said, in your dreams, you're telling yourself something while you're sleeping that you've been ignoring while you're awake. It's worth thinking about. So in your dreams, you're trying to tell yourself something while you're sleeping that you've been ignoring and avoiding and suppressing and being willfully blind to while you're awake. Well, what is this girl afraid of? Obviously, she's afraid of losing her husband. She's afraid of this, this whole thing falling apart. Look, I have a reoccurring nightmare, okay? I have it less five years in, but I have a nightmare that I lose this book on a Sunday morning, okay? I mean, it has, I have had this nightmare probably 20 times. The printer jams. I can't print my notes. I can't find my book in between services. I'm driving to the church building and I forget where it is. I mean, just strange things like that. Well, it's like, what am I telling myself? I guess I'm telling myself that, well, since this is such a public thing that I do and it's fairly important, it's like, I'm afraid that I would one day show up here and have nothing to say, which would be awkward for all of us, <laughs> especially me. Let's, let's do another song, guys. You know what I mean? What, what are we going to do? Okay, so, um, so her nightmare is telling her something. Now look at this. So, uh, she gets up. I will rise now and I will go to the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. She's gonna say that four times. I sought him, but I found him not. The watchmen, these are leaders in the city who were keeping security. The watchmen found me as they went out in the city have, and she asked, have you seen him who my soul loves? Now she's gonna say that phrase, my soul loves, four times in this passage. So what pushes you towards marriage is soul love, not shallow love, right? Shallow love is this person makes me feel good inside. In fact, that's what we normally think love is. If you love me, you'll make me feel good, right? If your kid ever says, you're not being very loving, it's like, probably I am being loving. I'm just not giving you what you want. That's what you mean by I'm not being loving, okay? That's not a great definition of love. For us, we tend to think of love as it's overly emotional. It's, it's all about attraction, and it's kind of, we use, don't we use the word love very ambiguously in America? I love my wife, I love the Lord, I love tacos. All of those things are not equal, okay? But, but we have the word love. So what is love biblically? Love is three things. It's allegiance, it's action, and it's affection. That's the best definition of love I've ever heard. And you see it, it you see it in the wedding perfectly. It, 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 it is what happens. So what happens at a wedding? You have allegiance. By the way, everybody wants the affections. We all do, it's a good thing. 
How do you get the affections? Well, here's, the, here's what you need to know. They're not the root. The affections are the fruit. Allegiance is the root that bears the fruit of affection. And, and this is why you'll see people, the longer they're married, the deeper their commitments, man, the more they have all the feelings that we all want. Okay, so here's what happens. So there's allegiance. You know, this is why we take vows. This is why I encourage people to not write their own vows, right? I'll, you know, I'll never burn the cookies, you know. I'll laugh at all your silly jokes. It's like, don't write those vows. R- write the vows that are like in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor. It's like our ancestors knew what they were talking about. So take those vows. Another practical reason why you take those vows, because then every wedding that you ever go to, and 95% of weddings do the traditional vows, you rehear and are reminded of the vows you took. Anyway, so there's, um, there's allegiance, and then there's action. Now, what is the action? Well, in the wedding, the allegiance is the vows, and the action is the sexual union. That's the, that's the action that follows the allegiance. And then what's the affections? What's well, all of the feelings that we want to have? And so we, we, for some reason, lose this in marriage, but we get this in parenting. So by the way, if you don't know this, every parent has a covenantal relationship with every one of their kids. This is a biblical idea. And so every, but, and, and it's like, it's deep in us. We know it. It's like, well, what if your kid is severely disabled? Allegiance. I'm completely devoted. What if something terrible happens to your kid? What if they turn 13 and betray you? Which all 13-year-olds probably will. <laughs> and they turn on you. It's like, well, okay. Well, I, I'm in. I, I, I'm completely committed to you. And, I, and I'm going to do all of the actions. And then, and then God is often, very often, very gracious. When we have the allegiance and we do the right actions, over time, the right emotions, right? Every parent knows this. I know, the Bible says kids are a blessing, but on their way to being a blessing, they're very expensive and very exhausting, okay? And all the people laughing right now are parents, okay? Um, everyone else is like, what? Uh, yeah, they are, okay. Um, so it's a, the, the whole point is, but we all get it. Hey, we're completely all in as parents. We're gonna do all the actions necessary, and God is so gracious. And you have those moments where you're like, I have, the, I have a feeling in my heart for my sons and daughter that I don't have for anybody else. And it flows from deep allegiance and deep action. Okay, so she has soul love, not shallow love. And, and look where it leads. Look at verse four. She finally finds her husband. Or her fiance, I should say. They're engaged. Scarcely had I passed them, that's the watchman, when I found him. It's like, oh, thank goodness. It's not as much a nightmare anymore. Whom my soul loves. Fourth time she said that. I held him and I would not let him go. What does she want? She wants to be one. She, wants, she, she understands the goal of marriage. She wants to be one with this man. In fact, her nightmare is that she, the one would be undone, that she wouldn't get to be one with this man. Women instinctively, Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous pastor of the 20th century, he said women instinctively desire oneness. He said most guys, we don't get it, right? Every, every guy who gets married realizes, my wife wants to do everything with me. Like you're married the first week. She's like, we're going to bed, right? It's like, we're not going to bed. You're going, you're going to bed. Football's on. I'm staying up. No, no, we go to bed at the same time. We go to bed at the same time? Why would we do that? I'm not even tired. See, you're laughing because this is all true. Hey, 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 babe, I'm just going to drive there from work and I'm just going to, we're just going to meet. You're, no, you're going to come home and we're going to get in the car and we're going to drive together. Well, that's, that's not very efficient. Right? In fact, women's greatest critique of their husbands will often be the, is that they don't feel that oneness. And what they'll feel is, my husband would like me to be the mother to his children. My husband would like me to be a willing sexual partner when he wants it. My husband would like me to uh, keep the house clean. 
and my husband would like me to be a second economic unit. And women can feel that. And they don't even, all those things, if they say, well, I don't mind working, babe, and yeah, I don't mind, I, I love keeping the house, but, but I want to know that we're one. I, I want that oneness. Again, women know it instinctively. Men, over time, have to learn it. But, but it's, it's good news for us, men, because look at the rest. I didn't finish verse four. Let's go back to verse four and look at this. Scarcely had I passed them when I found him, back to verse four, whom my soul loves, I held him, and I would not let go. Okay, so you're like, okay, great. So she wants to be one with this man. Look what she says next. Until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber, that's the bedroom, of her who conceived me. So here's the principle. And we all know this, that once a woman knows the man that she wants to give her life to, that she wants to be one with, she wants to give her whole self to, including sexually. There's no other way to read this than she has an unbelievably strong sexual desire for this man. Is it wrong for women to have strong sexual desires for their husband? No! <laughs> right? All the guys should immediately be going, no, 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 it's fine. <laughs> right? I'm trying to help you guys out. Okay. <laughs> well, oftentimes, and we'll see this more next week, we often think it's offense, defense with that kind of stuff. The men play offense, the women play defense. No, that's not. When there's love, when there's affection, when the woman feels safe, when she feels beautiful, when she feels one, she wants to freely give herself to the man. It's a beautiful picture. And here's why this is so interesting. Here's what we found out, that women, the female woman, um, I guess I didn't need both those words. Um, <laughs> it's 2022, okay. Um, the, okay, it, the, the female is the most sexually selective creature on earth. It's fascinating. For example, what I'm trying to say is the female chimp and the female ape and you know, all, the, all the female species of all the other creatures, they will basically have sex with whatever male is around. It's fascinating. Scientists, especially people who you know, believe that we're all quote unquote highly evolved animals, they're fascinated by this. Why are women so much different? It's like, well, we're made in the image of God. The women are made in the image of God. And they have this idea that they want to give themselves fully just to one person for one lifetime. And that expresses itself in sexuality. So this all leads to the actual wedding day. Look at me to the wedding day, verse seven. Um, or sorry, verse six, verse six. We get a very symbolic ceremony. By the way, that's what weddings are. Uh, we live in a highly casual, highly informal culture. And so really outside of graduation services, and weddings, there's, not, there's, just, there's just not a lot of formality to our lives anymore. All right, look at what this says. Uh, what is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? So the smoke represents God's involvement, God's presence, and God's leadership. That's often what would happen, right? Smoke would fill the temple. Smoke would fill the synagogue. Uh, people are led by a cloud by day and fire by night with all the smoke. It represents God's leadership. Here's what he's saying. God is involved in marriage. Marriage is not a human institution. It's ultimately a divine invention. I told you this at the beginning, but it shows way back up in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. It's what theologians call a creation ordinance. It's built into the fabric of creation. That's why you find it in every society and every civilization on earth. It's pre-fall. It happens before sin enters the world. When, it, when we say it's a creation ordinance, we actually mean it's for believers 
and it's for unbelievers. Is it a good thing when a non-Christian marries a non-Christian? Yes. Whole other sermon, and I think Stephen got into it. Yes, Christians only should marry Christians. Okay, because the deepest level of oneness is at the level of the soul, and you can't, if you don't have the same God, you can't be one. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, but what we see is that marriage is it's pre-political. It means why does government get involved in marriage? Well, that's a hard, there's a lot to answer that. Well, the main reason government gets involved in marriage is because of what marriage produces, namely children. Okay, and the government cares about making sure kids children can care of. So that's why historically the government's gotten involved in marriage. But marriage is pre-political. It was, it was invented by God and given to us long before the government. Now, here's why this is like super practical. Let me just do a, I think this is the only time I'm gonna talk about this, but it's just, some of you have asked about this, and so let me just address it. Same-sex marriage, okay? Uh, or what I call so-called same-sex marriage. I'm not mad at gay people. I'm not scared of gay people. I'm not afraid of gay people. I don't misunderstand gay people. I, I understand all of this. I, I'm just gonna talk about same-sex marriage just for a second so we understand it. So I call it so-called same-sex marriage because it's actually... Biblically speaking, it's not marriage. Marriage is one woman, one man for one lifetime. Here's why this is just real practical. If, if we had a gay couple, this would be awesome. They, they come to faith in Christ and they're, they were so-called married and they said, we have to get divorced. Well it's, like, well, it's like a seminary question. It's like, well, what would you say to that? It's like you'd say, no, you don't have to get divorced because you're never married. I don't know what this is that you're in, but it's not marriage. You may have to tell the government something, but from the church's eyes, you're never married. There's maybe other things that you would need to repent of. But marriage is one man, one woman, one lifetime. And this is why we need to be careful about this because obviously you're gonna, I think, I mean, I'm not a doomsday person, but I think you're gonna see things like polygamy in the future. It's like if we've changed it from man and woman to man and man and woman and woman, that's a bigger leap than going from two to three. Changing it being same sex and changing the number of people, it's, you get it. We've, we've made the bigger jump, that's what I'm trying to say. And so it, what we see here in this wedding ceremony is it's, it's ultimately about God being involved, which means this. Here's what you need to think. Here's the swing thought. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. So some of you are really, especially your success, some of your successful businessmen, your successful businesswomen, you understand contracts. You know, people have whole you know, general counsels and lawyers and we write up contracts and contracts are really important. Why are contracts really important? It's like, well, they are great for business. It's like, I wanna make sure that what I want gets done. And I wanna make sure that what you say gets done. And if you don't do this, then you're going to pay or I'm going to punish, and that's how a contract works. It's like, well, you actually need those for the marketplace. Praise the Lord, we got them for the marketplace. But for marriage, it's not contract, it's covenant. Contract is 50-50, covenant is 100-100. Covenant is I'm committed to you in all of the ways you will change. That's what, how you'll change physically, how you'll change in your personality, how you'll change when you become a mom or dad how you'll change through illness and injury. I'm committed to you in all the ways that you'll change. Covenant says we're locking the doors. Nobody's leaving. We're going to fight, fight fair. We're gonna fight this out. We're gonna talk all this out. Now, the first time I really got this idea of vows was at my own wedding. So, so I've married almost 12 years now. And um, when I was, the day of my wedding, 10 minutes before I'm about to go out and with all, got all my groomsmen, we're all in this Methodist church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and my, the guy who's doing our wedding, who was this intense ex-military, like senior pastor, you know, very intimidating. Anyway, he says, Kyle, I wanna to talk to you. This is like five, 10 minutes before we're supposed to walk out. And I said, yeah, uh, yeah, Pastor Craig, and I walked over to him, and uh, he said, come over with me. And he walks me down away from everybody else, and he walks me to the exit door. 
I've never done this to anybody. I've done a lot of weddings. I've never gotten back at someone and done this to them, okay? He did this to me. He stands me there and he says, hey, he says, Kyle, he says, um, this is the exit door. Um, this will be your last chance to leave. Uh, but if you want to leave, you can leave. He said, it'll be embarrassing. I'll go out there, I'll explain everything. We'll still have the reception. <laughs> <laughs> but but you're, this is your last chance to leave. And, uh, but... If you go through with this, you can never leave again. Well, that's what he, what he was teaching me there through kind of a, a symbolic thing was covenant. I'm committed to you in all of the ways you will change. In covenant, you say, I'm not going anywhere. It's covenant thinking versus contract thinking. So let me show you what happens next. So you have this, and then look at verse 7. Solomon begins to show up with some men. Look, behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Okay, now he didn't have like, a bunch of kittens or something, okay? The litter, I don't even know why, they should have changed, retranslated this. It basically means the couch or carriage. He's basically sending ahead a, a vehicle and a ride to pick up his bride. It says this, around it are 60 mighty men. These are his best men and his groomsmen. Some of you are like, I couldn't get three guys to be in my wedding. Well, he's the king, so it's a little different, okay? Um, he says this, some of them, the mighty men of Israel. Look at this, verse eight. All of them wearing swords, an expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. This is how we know this wedding was in Lexington, North Carolina. It's open carry. <laughs> this, is, this is an open carry wedding, okay? This is either in Mount Airy or Lexington or something or Yakinville. This is one of those places. Okay, um, verse nine. King Solomon, look, much hasn't changed in 4,000 years. King Solomon made himself a carriage. He shows up in his own ride to impress his bride-to-be. Uh, from the wood of Lebanon, look at, look at this design. He made its post of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. His interior designer, Cam Newton. <laughs> its interior is, was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, here, here's the whole point of this, is that Solomon, this is what you're getting with the imagery, okay? Solomon is super excited to marry this woman. Which makes us ask this question, why are men today not as excited to get married? Because he's unbelievably excited. He's got 60 of his friends. He's spending a lot of money. He's getting all dressed up. He's sending a carriage ahead. Why are men today not getting married? Well, there's a couple answers for that. One is just general passivity. And I'm hoping this is not Christian men, but it might be Christian men, but this is certainly men in our culture. It's general passivity. Uh, we don't know all the reasons why. Obviously, pornography makes you unbelievably lazy. Unbelievably lazy. So you have to understand this. I don't want to be crude how I talk about this, but the average 20-year-old man, or boy, whatever we want to call him, the average 20-year-old man can look at more beautiful naked women on his phone in one day than any man would have been able to see if he wanted to for his entire life up until very recently. It's what pornography has done to people. But there's other reasons. Really, at the end of the day, here's what's happened. Today, like I've, we just had a bunch of Wake Forest students here at the nine o'clock service and talking to them a little bit directly and saying, listen, what are most men doing at Wake? You know, it's like, well, Trying to download free porn on the internet is probably one of the things. But what are most men doing? They are, here's what's happened with college, and particularly young men up until like about 30. They're able to, this is unbelievable. They're able to have the pleasures of a man 
with the responsibilities of a boy. And if you're not a Christian, and if you don't have a vision of God, and if you don't have any desire to be a dad, why would you get married and why would you give that up? We're in a very difficult place with young men. They're not getting their driver's license. They're not going to college. They're not getting the jobs they should. They're not pursuing the women. We have this crisis. And it's because most guys have settled. They said, that's okay. I'll take, a, I'll take all. I can already dip into and taste a man's pleasures, which used to have to, used to, have to get married to, to have those. I don't have to do that anymore. So I'll continue to have a boy's responsibility. Here's another thing. There's a book that was written a couple years ago called Men on Strike. Not written by a Christian, actually written by a woman, a non-Christian woman. She writes this book called Men on Strike. She basically argues why men aren't getting married. She says it's, uh, she calls it rational choice theory. It's an economic theory that she applies to why men aren't getting married. And again, non-Christian perspective, but she basically says, uh, most guys are like, well, if I do this, she's going to like tell me not to travel as much. She's going to try to control me. Oh, and oh man, and if she divorces me, how do guys do in divorce court for irreconcilable differences? Not good. So the average guy goes, I don't think so. I don't think I want to marry her, have her take half my stuff, and I don't think I want to, what if she takes the kids? And then I can't see the kids anymore? Because court's going to be, I mean, we know this, courts are tougher on men with this stuff. So this is a serious crisis that we have in our nation, and so part of what we're trying to do, what are we doing in this series? Part of it is we're trying to elevate marriage. Not to the exclusion of saying we love single people, Jesus was single, Paul was single, nothing wrong with singleness. We're just saying marriage needs to be lifted up, and we're particularly trying to call up men to the glory of marriage and to say don't settle for a boy's responsibilities and the cheap version of a man's pleasures. What we see here is, as, it, as, it, as this all goes together, what Solomon is saying, here's, here's the imagery of the wedding. He's coming, he's on a carriage, he's got 60 guys, they've got their, their weapons, it's all, it's, it's opulent. I mean, there's, lo there's lots of money being spent, okay? Um, what, what is Solomon saying? Solomon is saying, all of my strength and all of my power and all of my attention is now directed at this woman which is what every woman wants. This is why the woman takes the man's last name. I'm, I'm going to give her all of me. Now, with our very limited time left, I want to talk for a few minutes of how do we practically, and we'll revisit this in weeks to come, how do we practically become one? So if you positionally become one on the wedding day, next week we'll see how you physically become one, the wedding night. Um, and then how do you practically and progressively become one? Here's the, here's the simple phrase. You focus on ministering to your mate instead of manipulating them. That's the key to becoming one. Do you know, this is kind of cool, you are husband, you are wife, the main instrument that God wants to use to minister to your spouse. I think that's pretty cool. Like, you have a unique position, husband. You have a unique position, wife, that nobody else on earth has. That you can either, you can use that position to manipulate. Manipulate is basically, I'm going to learn you well enough to manipulate you to serve me. I'm going to change you to serve me. Which is a different mentality than, I want to get to know you, I want to know your love languages. Here we are in the city of love languages, right? 
I, I want to know your love languages. I want to know who you are. I want to know your insecurities. I want to know your struggles. I want to know your temptations. I want to know your needs, not so I can manipulate them. Right? We're really good. We can manipulate with our emotions. We can manipulate with exaggeration. You always, you never. We can manipulate by being a relational archaeologist. Back in 1987, at that wedding, you, we, we can do all of that. What would it look like instead of manipulating to say, I'm going to minister, which by the way just means serve. I'm going to serve my wife. I'm going to serve my husband. Well, to do that, you a couple things. One, you have to realize that you have real needs. You're like, you know, you have, men have a real need to be respected. Women have a real need to be loved. Men have a real need to feel significant. Women have a real need to feel secure. We have sexual needs. We have all of these different needs and they're real. We have to say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you to meet my needs. And I want to, I want to move toward becoming more and more one with my spouse by ministering to his or ministering to her needs. Now, here's what you have to do to do that. This is like, you know, we don't give homework here, but if there was a homework assignment, okay? If there was a practical application, I think, what would it look like? What would it look like if every married couple in here had a conversation, an honest and open conversation about how they could better minister to one another and pursue oneness through ministering to one another? It's an awkward, it's kind of a, I've seen this happen before, it's kind of an awkward conversation. There's a vulnerability. Sometimes you'll feel really shallow even by what you're going to ask, or you'll feel silly, or you'll feel like it's arbitrary. You may just say, hey, when I'm, I'd really appreciate it if while I was cooking, you would be in the kitchen so we could talk. And he won't know that. <laughs> and you'll, you'll tell him things that he doesn't know. What would it look like if we were committed to ministering to, hey, what, how do I minister to you spiritually? What would minister to you spiritually? What would minister to you financially? Because we know what happens. The saver marries the spender, and then we frustrate each other. What would it look like? I'm the saver. You're the spender. You're the spender. I'm the saver, whatever. How do we minister to one another? What would that look like? See, what, what we get at the very end, I'll show you this, verse 11, we get the glorious final picture of marriage. Look at me at verse 11. Here's what it says. It ends with a final word of the woman to her friends. Remember earlier, she said, don't awaken love too early. She says this, go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon. Well, why? Well, what are we looking for? With the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of the gladness of his heart. Here's what she's saying. She's saying, I want you to look at King Solomon. And I want you to see his mom is putting a crown on his head. And if you read this, we always say this, a good Bible reader should be a confused Bible reader. You go, well, why doesn't the dad put the crown on him? Well, because it's not the crown of becoming a king over Israel. That would be what King David would do, right? Solomon will become the third king over Israel, okay? David puts the crown on him. That's what happens. Why does the mom put the crown on him? Well, this was a wedding tradition in Jewish society at that time where both the king, or sorry, both the husband and the wife received crowns. And it was an image and a picture to say that every husband is a king. And every wife is a queen. And what they do together is build a small little kingdom that is part of the larger kingdom of God. And I think, what an incredible picture. This is what our single brothers and sisters, this is what they long for. They, they want somebody to share their life with it. They say, we could, together, we could have a ministry in the world or a ministry in the church. And together, we could have a mission in the world. Now, here's what's interesting. All of this points us to Christ. We know this. Because it's interesting. We talk about marriage, and you know, the Bible talks about our relationship with Jesus in regards to 
marriage and being, being one. And it's interesting. So, so next time you read your New Testament, look for all the times, especially in Paul's letters, where it says in Christ or with Christ. That is the way to say connected or united. The, the, the biblical teaching is union with Christ. It's that we're one with Christ. When we trust in Jesus, when we transfer trust from ourselves to Jesus, when we repent and believe in the gospel, we are somehow connected to him that we become one. It's a mystery. So when I die and I stand before God and I'm going to head to heaven, it's not going to be because of anything I did. God's going to go, hey, look, that was so awesome when you said no to temptation in the desert against the devil. I'm like, I didn't do that. I was in Christ. He lived the perfect life for me. What we believe, by the way, is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, somehow, I, I can't fully explain it to you, somehow we were in Christ and with Christ and connected to Christ, that somehow Jesus Christ was punished instead of me, yet it counted for me. Somehow I was there. Somehow I was connected. It's a mystery. How do, as a husband and wife, come together? How does two become one? It's a mystery. But it's at the very, very center of our faith. Now, what we do, by the way, is because we are one with Christ, that's called union with Christ, what we pursue the rest of our lives is what's called communion with Christ. If you go, why do I read my Bible? Why do I pray? Why did you show up at church today? Why did you do any of this? It would hopefully be because, among many other reasons, because you want to pursue communion with Christ. You have union with Christ. You are one with him, but you want to make daily decisions to abide in Christ. That is actually the first relationship that you have to get ready and you have to get right before you can get your other relationship. It's always, who will I worship before who will I wed? Now, as we close, I just want to say something to particularly, maybe people watching online, maybe people in here who particularly, they feel like they're in a really hard marriage. I just want to end, end with a word. If you are in a hard marriage, you really have three options. If you're in a hard marriage, you can have the same marriage with the same spouse. You're like, I don't want to have the same marriage. I, I just told you my marriage is terrible, Kyle. Okay, you don't want that option. You don't want to have the same marriage with the same spouse. Okay, let's not do that. You can have, here's option two, you can have the same marriage with a new spouse. You don't want that option either, okay? I'm just telling you, this, this happens all the time. People get divorced in the first 10 years of marriage. They re-fall in love. They get re-infatuated with somebody else. And they go through the, the honeymoon season again. They get married. They have the exact same problems in year five and six of their second marriage or their third marriage. What's happening? One day they wake up, they look in the mirror, they go, I'm having this. I'm having the same marriage. I'm having the exact same marriage because everywhere I go, I bring me. So I'm having the same marriage, even though it's a new marriage. It's the same marriage with a new spouse. Here's the encouragement from the gospel. You can have a new marriage with the same spouse. We actually believe, we don't just believe that Jesus Christ forgives us of our sins. That's great. That's the foundation of our faith. We also believe that he transforms and changes our lives such that you actually, by the grace of God, can have a new marriage with the exact same spouse. Let's pray. Lord, we, we don't know what all people are dealing with in our church or in our city. We know that marriage is a huge pressure point for people, Lord. Lord, I pray a few things from, the, from this text and the message over all of us. Lord, I pray that we would hear it at two cities, we would be known for having a soul love, not a shallow love, that there would be a depth to our love for each other, a depth to our love for our children, and particularly a love for our kids and for our spouse, that we would sense that, that sense of covenantal allegiance that leads to actions and leads to affections. 
Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to just all of us to transfer over from contract thinking to covenantal thinking, Lord. Not to, I'm going to try to get what I want, but I want to give all that I can. I'm all in. I'm not going anywhere. And I'm committed to you in all the ways you will change. Lord, help us practically to pursue oneness. Lord, maybe even right now we could just think for a moment, how could we minister to our mate instead of manipulate them? How could we minister to them sexually? How could we minister to them financially? How could we minister to them prayerfully? How could we minister to them in regards to time and schedule? How can we minister to them in regards to their roles and their jobs and their career and their parenting? Lord, give us a, the heart of Christ. Give us a heart to serve and minister to one another. We ask this for your glory and our good. Amen.